The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And here we go. The Duff McKagan joke of the week. Hey, Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan calling you here. Uh, hope everybody's doing well. Yeah. Listen, did you hear about the guy who killed a man with sandpaper? Huh? He only wanted to rough him up. Uh, anyhow, thank you very much. Goodbye. <laughs> wow. It's all in the delivery, as we know, and Duff brings the laughs to Talk is Jericho every Friday like clockwork. And speaking of kills, Eli Roth returns to Talk is Jericho to talk about his new horror movie, Thanksgiving, which just hit theaters today, Friday, November 17th. This movie has been in the making since 2007. Started as a one-off trailer for Tarantino and Rodriguez Grindhouse movie. Uh, and, of course, Eli explains how he got involved in that project and what inspired the original trailer idea. He also talks about why it took so long to turn turned the trailer into a movie, almost 15 years, 16 years, and the challenges he and childhood friend Jeff Rendell faced while trying to write the Thanksgiving script. Eli also shares a story about how Patrick Dempsey got involved in the movie, how Eli's Boston hometown became the setting for the film, and what it was like to recreate Boston and the incredible accents in Canada. I've seen this movie. I went to the premiere the other night, and these kills, he talks about the crazy kills, and they are batshit crazy. This whole movie is insane in the best possible way. Uh, He talks about the kills and the importance of it being a theatrical release as opposed to a streaming flick. I agree with that. Eli also gets into the impact that COVID had on the film industry as a whole and how he feels about his bounce back. He discusses the influence that his big budget Hollywood films had on Thanksgiving and why now was the time for him to return to his indie horror movie roots. He got stories about Tarantino and Glorious Bastards, Kate Blanchett, Bruce Willis. He reveals why he always will love the Friday the 13th franchise more than Halloween, much to uh, Darcy the Mail Girl's uh, uh, happiness. But let's do it. Thanksgiving with Eli Roth. Like I said, this is a batshit crazy movie you have got to see this is what we've been waiting for eli for years and years and years and we're talking all about it right here right now on talk is jericho dude it's to uh get uh wi-fi in fargo for some reason i guess that's uh the tribulations of being in fargo north dakota yeah real good then you gotta go to mike Gagahita's. <laughs> yeah you betcha he's kind of funny looking oh yeah <laughs> Oh, yeah. Look at you with the mustache, Eli. I got the mustache, man. Stashing it up. Very Errol Flynn-esque. But, you know, that was, that was the vibe. I kind of came back from shooting Thanksgiving, but my wife was like, I think you need a mustache. We started watching old, like, 60s Italian movies, and she's like, you'd look great with that. And so I got, like, the Marcello Mastro in a 1960 Italy Dolce Vita look, and it just sort of stuck. Well, we kind of already are recording, so let's just go right into this, because we haven't seen each other in such a long time. Dude, it's so and sad. You, but I feel like I see you everywhere all the time. Just, it's incredible, man. So, just so happy for you. It's either like a, a bestseller or your <laughs> league is doing amazing. You're, you're everywhere. It's awesome. Well, it's cool because we have had a chance to talk a few times via Talk is Jericho like this, but you actually were spending a lot of time in Italy. Do you still actually live in Italy? No, the Italy experiment is over, sadly. I mean, we tried. Like during the pandemic, I married my wife, who's Italian, and we were living in Florence. And then basically, as you know, everything moved to Zoom. So all these meetings where you drive around pitching projects in Hollywood, you know, we're like, I can't pitch over Zoom. I got to be in the room. And now I'm like, ugh, I have to leave my house. I don't want to get my car. So (laughs) everything switched to Zoom until the point where you're making the movie. And so I thought, well, 
if I don't mind staying up late, let me let me try it. And so you get to Italy and you realize you basically the internet is so slow. It's like you can barely get a text message there, especially when the temperature spikes. It's so we rented this house and it was like being in some kind of, you know, 1990s comedy where, you know, you go to the village and the lady wouldn't let me buy the food unless I ordered an Italian because all the like people at the market wanted <laughs> to teach me Italian. And then you're driving up a hill in these like cars and, and the cars are like on a cliff. And, and if another car is coming, you have to like pull into someone's house and let the car pass. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. The old guy with that. I mean, and it was great until, you know, last summer when it got up to 106 degrees, we had the one satellite internet thing on the roof and it melted basically. So you couldn't get anything from like seven in the morning till eight or nine at night because the internet was just too hot. So the satellite <laughs> heated up too much. So I was like, this is sort of not practical. So we, uh, we threw in the towel on that. Italy's a nice place. It's a, I always say it's the greatest country in the world until your dishwasher breaks and then you're screwed. <laughs> I was just there over the summer. We went there for a family vacation for 10 days. And I, and I felt that like the whole ambiance is great and the history is great. But the lack of air conditioning when you're eating in like an outside restaurant and you're just dripping sweat and it's so uncomfortable and it's like people just packed together in these places and you're like, I just want some air conditioning and some ice, please. Can I have some ice? Yeah. What, uh, what month? Because it's gotten bad in the last two years. Like when I was there in 2020 during the pandemic, it was great because nobody was there. But TikTok has kind of, I don't want to say it's ruined it, but TikTok has made it such a huge destination. There's no kind of hidden places anymore. And they don't have air conditioning. Like we we had hornets this summer and they were so big. They looked like they came off a baseball cap, like that size hornets, like cartoon. <laughs> star, it was like Starship Troopers. And so there's no air conditioning. You just like close the shutters or two rooms of air conditioning. But we're in this old villa we rented this, you know, it was a Templar villa. It had been a monastery and a convent. I mean, it's like we're living in King's Landing in Game of Thrones, right? And I'm trying to make right. it work. But the hornets are just like insanely attacking you. So we had to put up screens and then the screen guy did like three quarters of them. And then he's just like, he left for Calabria. He's like, I'll come back in October. And then if you leave the window open with the screen, there's a villa nearby that does weddings. So every night they're just playing Bruno Mars, you know, Uptown Funk going to give it. So we're just like <laughs> tortured by hornets and Bruno Mars. Like this is, and you're melting. So they don't want to be in air conditioning. They're like, cause you get sick. I was like, I know, but you also stay really cool and enjoy everything. But if you turned on the air conditioning and the oven and the microwave at the same time, all the power went out. So I'd have to go like down the street to the breakers and change the fuses. I mean, it was, it was a catastrophe while being chased by hornets. It was just awful. I'm not meant for Italy country life at all. Well, you're back in the States with a, with an amazing stash as you should have as a director. <laughs> Thank you. Which is amazing to me. And obviously we're going to talk about Thanksgiving, but it's, it's crazy because we've been friends for such a long time that when I look back, I, I remember you describing, we've discussed this before, Hostel in mm -hmm. your old place in the Hollywood Hills, which was way back in like probably 2004 or so. Yeah, somewhere in 2003, 2004. And here we are in 2023 with Thanksgiving, but you haven't made a big Hollywood picture since uh, 2018 with House of the Clock on the Walls. Is that correct? Well, I shot Borderlands, um, but Borderlands is not coming out until next year. So I did shoot one in between them, right? But right, right. it was such a long process with the visual effects, and COVID was so there. There, what we call the hidden costs of COVID, where you're like, it's not just that you have to shut down. Like you, we shot the movie, and then we wanted to do some pickup scenes, but everybody else's movie kept shutting down. So you sort of sat there for a year waiting, and then you know it takes forever to do all the visual effects and finish it. So it's still you know almost done, but it'll come out you know, in August of next year. But yeah, dude, I, I love that about you. I love that about us. Like the two of us have always stayed very true to who we are and what we love. You know, it's like hockey, metal, like heavy metal, like the stuff we grew up with, which is like <laughs> horror movies, heavy metal, hockey, wrestling, like the stuff that for us, that was our bread and butter, that not only have you found a way to, I think both of us made to, to make a career and make a living out of it, but you really helped evolve the sport of wrestling in a way that wouldn't have happened had you never gotten involved. Like you're such a creative guy that your vision for AEW and to combine it with your music and to combine it with the crews, like it's almost like the ideas you would have had when you were 13 years old, yeah. but you're able to focus on it and rally enough people around it and get it done. And, and your podcast, of course, I just have the utmost respect for you and your work ethic because 
everything we do is work, but it's all the stuff we love. So it feels like fun, you know? Well, and, and I can say the same thing about you. Cause when we were talking about hostile, I mean, you did kind of revolutionize the horror industry in the two thousands with just kind of the whole, I know they called it torture porn, but it's just more hardcore yeah. with the, the, the violence of the scenes and the, and the comedy that you used and the humor and just the overall fun vibe. I mean, we're talking about terrifier too. There would be no Terrifier 2 or Terrifier, I don't think, if there wasn't like a hostel in the movies that you made in that time frame to kind of open up the door again to these pieces that were kind of more prevalent in the 70s and early 80s that went away for a while with just kind of like, I know it's violent, but it's it's just these amazing kills yeah. with so much invention to them. I mean, you kind of were at the forefront of that as well. Oh, thanks, man. I mean, I, I felt that, you know, I think we all felt that that period kind of between Scream after Blair Witch and the late 90s, early 2000s, really especially in the 90s, horror had just gotten so soft. And I think that there were, you know, culturally, there was a backlash to violence. If there is a, it happened with My Bloody Valentine after the assassination on President Reagan. Like when Reagan got shot, all of a sudden the violence in movies got cut and it just started pairing back from there. And then there was home video, so you could be a little more violent with home video. And then there was a time in the 90s where it was, everything was PG-13 because young teenage girls were going and Right. And I thought, you know, they're going to grow up and everyone wants, we all miss these kind of violent R-rated movies. And now that violence has moved to television in such a way that the stuff you're seeing that we saw on Game of Thrones or in The Last of Us, horror TV is so grisly and gnarly. It's it's like violence isn't a, a gimmick anymore, that you just have to have like a great, crazy, fun idea now. And it's got to be scary. And it's got to be, I mean, look at the latest example is Five Nights at Freddy's, which is not a particularly violent film. It's PG-13. But it's, you know, kids that grew up on that game wanted to see that movie and they came out in droves for it. So you can see the audience is there for that communal experience. They love going to a theater with their friends and screaming. And that's what I tried to do with Thanksgiving. I tried to really make it in, in the tradition of like, you know, happy birthday to me, my bloody Valentine, obviously Halloween, Black Christmas, prom night, April Fool's Day. And a lot of those movies were shot in Canada. So we did not break that tradition. We shot, it's the classic movie pretending to be in, in America shot in Canada <laughs> where there's some amazing Canadian accents. But we found people, because it's set regional, which I love regional horror, um, it's set in Massachusetts. We got cast members that actually had Boston accents. And a lot of people from the Boston area moved to Toronto to be actors. And then Patrick Dempsey said he wanted to be in the movie and he grew up in Maine. And he's like, should I use my accent? I'm like, what do you mean? You have an accent? He's like, yeah, he has like a kind of a main accent. Like you grew up like a very light, very light, not like, not like Wicked Hot, but like a little bit of a light accent like that. We're like, <laughs> I'm like, you talk like that? He's like, dude, that's how I grew up. He's from Lewiston, Maine, um, where actually there was just that, wow. that tragic shooting recently. That's right. That tragic shooting. Yeah, so, yeah. So he's from Lewiston. And he told me that when he did like Can't Buy Me Love and all those movies, he worked really hard to lose his accent. Like it was very, very tough for him. But he's like, if I'm going to be an actor, I've got to get rid of my New England accent. So no one's ever heard it before. It's the, it's the first time he's ever used it. So we had a great time because we were just like talking in that voice the whole time. It was like just like a bunch of mass holes on set. It was pretty awesome. But you've done that too. And like even like John Cena and Affleck and Damon, it's like when you come from that area, you kind of have to tone down that accent if you want to kind of make it in the mainstream. Definitely. But it, what's interesting is there, you know, Jigsaw, Tobin Bell, when you talk to him a little bit, he's got a little bit of a, yeah, he's like from Revere. Like, you're like, oh, wow, this dude Jigsaw is <laughs> from Massachusetts. It depended on what school you went to and what your neighborhood was. And our elementary school in our particular section of Newton didn't have the accent, but it was sort of considered blue collar if you had the accent. Like, oh, the kids in the rougher side of town, they, they had the accent. So then when you go to junior high, you get these kids that are like wicked hardcore. And you're like, why do they talk so crazy? But it was, an, it was really a mark of how tough you are. Mm. Like the kids that had the accent, first of all, a mustache like mine when you're 11 <laughs> years old. It's taken me 50 years to grow this. But this is like, <laughs> these kids had it at 11. So you get in Little League with these kids and they were like these monsters throwing 100 mile an hour Randy Johnson fastballs at you. And you're this fat little pudgy kid going like, please don't hit me. And there was something about the accent that if you had it, you got like muscles, armpit hair, and a mustache at like 11 or 12, <laughs> and you sort of ruled and could beat everyone up. A strange thing happened by the time I was at the end of high school, which was a lot of people moved to Boston who weren't originally from there. So the kids with the accent went like wicked had to show that they were from there. Like, I'm not, a, I'm not from like, you know, I'm, 
I'm fucking born and bred here, kid. Like, <laughs> yeah. Wicked Hat. And the kids that are staying there now have, like, developed an accent. Like, why am I going to move? That's how I talk. I live here. So it's, it's this <laughs> weird psychological thing. But we found people in Toronto. This one kid, Mika Amundsen, he's this funny actor. His Boston accent was perfect. And we're like, how do you have it so good? And he watched The Departed over and over and over. He grew up in oh. Toronto. He's like, my dream is to be in one of those Boston. You know, we always have these kind of Boston tough towny movies, like Salt of the Earth guys, yeah. kind of criminal element to it. But no one's put that in a slasher film. I was like, I want to see those guys deal with a killer in a small town slasher movie. That was kind of the fun. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Let's go back to the kind of the origin of Thanksgiving. Of course, talking about Grindhouse which was the, um, for those who don't know, it was the Tarantino, Roberto Rodriguez, Robert Rodriguez, uh, kind of double feature, Death Proof and... Um, Planet Terror. Planet Terror. But in the middle and, 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 and sprinkled throughout, there's these great trailers. And obviously, if you guys have ever seen Machete, that started as a trailer in this movie. And the other two great ones, because there was a bunch of them, was Edgar Wright with Don't, Don't. Don't. Yeah, don't. Don't. Just don't. Don't go in the basement. Don't, don't go in the attic. Don't go in the house. Just don't. Don't. And then the other one, which we had laughed about because you were saying you were making it was Thanksgiving, which is white meat, dark meat, all will be carved. All was, will be carved. Yeah. So great. It was so absurd. But so, so tell me kind of how that started at that time frame, because I don't think we ever discussed how, how were you approached to, to do a trailer and how was it kind of pitched to you? Well, what's interesting is the idea for Thanksgiving actually does pre-day grindhouse to when i was about 12 or 13 years old and my best friend jeff randell i don't know if you met randell he's exactly like you You guys have the same level of <laughs> hockey knowledge it's really impressive and wrestling so jeff and i was my friend who like with you guys with your bad movie club like he was the one where i was watching we were watching wrestling going to hockey games and watching horror movies and that was what it was about and listening to maiden and Guns N' Roses later. <laughs> of course. We, but we were obsessed. But we've seen both together, by the way. Of course. So <laughs> Jeff and I, we'd watch, I remember us, his dad taking us to go see Silent Night, Deadly Night, which was like one of the formative experiences of my childhood because the guy at the concession stand was like, I don't think that's appropriate for you kids. And Jeff's dad goes, I don't give a goddamn what you think. These kids have seen every piece <laughs> of garbage out there. Give me those fucking tickets, which of course made the experience that much funnier because we, his dad sweared as some 17-year-old concession kid. But we're growing up in Massachusetts. So, you know, Thanksgiving is a huge deal. And every year there's a unit where you study Thanksgiving. And there are all these recreation villages. Like there's one called, it's, they changed the name. It was Plymouth Plantation in Sturbridge Village, where you go and you can see the, the pilgrims and how they lived. So we were like, why has nobody done a Thanksgiving slasher movie? There's no religion. It just, it, it crosses all barriers. Like this is the perfect holiday. So we would always say like, what if it's someone who is in love with a turkey and the turkey's killed and he goes on a revenge spree? Like we, and then what if someone gets roasted in a giant oven? And what if someone in a turkey costume in a parade gets their head cut off, but they run around like a turkey with their head cut off. So we had all these deaths, but it became a joke of like, oh, do you know what else could happen in Thanksgiving? Like we just had like a list of kills. Then what happened was, Tarantino said to me, we're going to make this movie Grindhouse and I want to do fake trailers in it. And I said, okay. And he said, you know, I want you, Rob Zombie and Edgar, you guys each to do a fake trailer. I was like, well, I already have mine written. It's Thanksgiving. That's the movie I've always wanted to make. I already have all the kills. And he's like, great, do it. So I basically tacked on two days of shooting to the end of Hostel 2, recycled the props and we built the floats. We did it. We, we went to Cladno, Czech Republic I think Yager's from Cladno, a place for Cladno. Yeah, he and, is, uh, he is, that's true. He is, it's Cladno. So we were in Cladno. We got the Cladno Majorettes. So the purpose of that was it was supposed to be like almost like a parody of an exploitation movie from, you know, or like some sleazy grindhouse horror movie from 1980. It's supposed to look like a low-budget movie that you're not supposed to see and you want to take a shower after you've seen it. Like Nightmare on a Damaged Brain or Maniac or Mother's Day, like one of these really just like, oh, yeah, yeah. kind of films, like indefensively offensive. But it was also a joke. That was the fun, was it was completely ridiculous. And then the response was so overwhelming 
people said to me after, why don't you make that a real movie? And of course, there was no plot. It was just some series of kills. It came out in 2007. And I mean, it's really took, taken until now to get it done only because we couldn't figure out what the movie was. Because when we sit down to write the movie, we're like, okay, well, then we have to have the turkey scene here. And how do we do this? And do we put the cheerleader in? And what what are those characters? Like, they weren't characters. It was just ridiculousness. <laughs> I, we couldn't write a script because we found like we were just writing the boring scenes in between the good scenes to get to the good scenes. And I was like, but how do I reverse engineer a movie to a fake trailer? And the breakthrough was when we said, what if we just pretend Thanksgiving 1980 is a real movie that existed, that was made in 1980, and the day it came out, it was so shocking and offensive, every print was pulled from cinemas and ordered burned, and they were all destroyed. All the trailers were destroyed. The scripts were gone. The crew members went into hiding. The director disappeared. The only thing that survived was one copy of the trailer. That's like lurking in the darkest corners of the internet. So we said, okay, let's, let's pretend that that's a real movie, and this is just a 2023 reboot of that. Hmm. So that allowed us to like, because we want to make you know a movie like Scream or My Bloody Valentine. Like We want to make a real movie. I don't want it to be... The, the movie isn't a joke. I think that the joke of the trailer and that sort of grindhouse aesthetic is very fun for three minutes. But in my opinion, I don't think it lasts 90 minutes. And I think if you do it for 90 minutes, you're signaling to the audience, you don't have to take this seriously. This is a joke. And I didn't want to do that. I mean, I like those. They're fun. But that was not my intention with the film. I wanted to make a real franchise where... You know, November's always quiet for horror, and it drove me crazy because Halloween, you get all these movies, and then maybe someone makes a killer Santa movie. Like maybe there's a Christmas horror movie, like right, Crampus, right. Or Silent Night, Deadly Night, or Violent Night, or whatever, like Santa Slay, whatever it is. But you have to wait, or like at least until January, until they start up again. So I really wanted to fill the November lull where there's no <laughs> horror movies because it's all the Christmas movies starting. I go, well, what if we just make it year round and fill in that gap between Halloween and Christmas with a Thanksgiving slasher movie? And it's going to open. I can't believe it. November 17th, it's going to be in theaters worldwide. And look, if it if the movie does great, I'm happy to just make these for the rest of my life because I had the time of my life making it. Well, it's interesting too, because when, when you're talking about the trailer, it reminds me of some of like the Saturday Night Live skits where they would make a movie, you know, like, it's just Pat or something. Like that Anderson movie, yeah. Yeah, it, it's a great two minute, three minute, four minute sketch, but to try and expand it into 90 minutes, it doesn't work. So for you to be able to do that with Thanksgiving, I see what you're saying with that because you have this great trailer, but it's like the great trailers that we would see sometimes like, I don't know, Weekend at Bernie's where all the best stuff is actually in the trailer and there's nothing yes. else in the movie, right? Yes. So you're, you're saying you want to make this an actual franchise that comes out every year, like Paranormal Activity or Saw or those movies used to do every, every Halloween. Yeah, or Final Destination or Scream. I mean, who knew that these movies were going to go to part seven? If I had known that, I would have focused more on Hostel. I wouldn't have been like, after two, I was like, <laughs> you guys have fun. I'll be doing other things. You know, I didn't know that there'd be a part 10 to stuff. It seemed inconceivable. On, I mean, look, it's in the hand of the fans. Obviously, the public determines whether you make another one if the movie's a hit. But you make them at a price. You know, you do them big enough budget that you can have real actors like Patrick Dempsey. You're getting That's amazing, yeah. Rick Hoffman, who's Lewis Litt on Suits. Everybody loves him. And Gina Gershon and Tim Dillon, who I'm a big fan of. So having people that can populate the movie and then young stars like Addison Ray and Milo Mannheim and newcomers like Nell Verlack and this kid Tommaso Sinelli, all, Jenna Warren, all the, all the kids are really, really fantastic. But you know, it's the premise that's the star. It's the scare. It's like a Thanksgiving slasher movie, a killer. And we found, look, while we were doing research into it, we found that the governor of New Plymouth Colony, the first governor and the guy who was in charge of the Mayflower coming over is named John Carver. Now, if that's not history just handing you a gift, <laughs> I don't know what is. Like, I had never heard of John Carver. We had never studied John Carver in school, but we looked him up and there's like one drawing of John Carver. So we're like, okay, what if we base the mask on that drawing of him and say that it was made for the 400 year anniversary of the pilgrims arriving in 1620. But because of COVID, they didn't have the parade. They had to cancel it. So they have like hundreds of these masks and they can't give them away because kids don't care about a John Carver mask, but like everybody's got them. So they're just like everyone in town, anyone could be the killer because everyone's just trying to give away these leftover masks. And then we thought, yeah, this is fun. Like, you know, coming up with the I learned all these things. The Capitan is the name of the hat, the Pilgrim hat. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, John Carver. So we thought it would be fun to take a historical figure that people could really look up and 
You know, I want kids in school to be like, I want to do my report on John Carver. Didn't he kill a bunch of people? And everyone's like, no, he was perfectly nice. He died at 43. And then the girl who you see in the diner scene getting her face, her head dunked in water and smashed to the frozen refrigerator door. Amanda Barker is from Hanover, which is the town next over from Plymouth. And she's like a 14th descendant. She's a descendant of John Carver. She's like John Carver. He was my great, 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 you know, whatever uncle. She's an actual relative. We had an actual... DNA relative to John Cava in the movie. <laughs> that, that's like the fun is taking history and kind of skewering Thanksgiving and what Thanksgiving has become with the Black Friday sales. And, you know, that it's everyone is super thankful until the sale goes on and then they try to crush each other to death for a waffle iron. So it's taking those themes and, uh, you know, just skewering it. But also having, I wanted to have awesome classic kills. I liked him Friday the 13th part four or five. Like, you know, you think of Jason with a machete, but I remember in part five, didn't he stick a Roman candle in someone's mouth? I was like, yeah. this is awesome. Like, it was just so good. Like when Jason just started using other weapons, right. like he had the pitchfork and two, but he, you know, he pictured Jason with a hockey mask, which he doesn't get until three, mm-hmm. and the machete. That's iconic slasher stuff. I love it. And I like the prowler where he uses the pitchfork. It's great. You know, and there's some <laughs> prowler references. There's some great death's there but in my bloody valentine you know he uses a table saw there's a lot of different things the killer uses you know harry warden and you know but you picture him with a pickaxe so like we wanted the icon of him with the axe but i didn't want every death to be an axe death so he's always got the axe but we we really had fun coming up with some insane just batshit crazy kills that are like horrible but just fun enough that you can like scream and cheer and be grossed out but like kind of well, you you have that in the in the original trailer where they come for Thanksgiving dinner, and it's actually a person. Yeah, tied human up turkey. Like a turkey. Rose, that was that was our obsession. The human turkey. <laughs> How can you not have someone roasted as a human? Like to me, that was the ultimate perversion of you know whipping off the table, like the whipping off the tablecloth to reveal <laughs> the human turkey. Where basically you're you know you're writing the movie, going, how do we engineer a movie to earn that moment? Like you can't just throw it in and, and feel like it's from a different movie. Right. You have to lead the audience. Like it's like a frog being boiled in water where it's just like, you don't even realize it's just getting like slightly crazier and crazier and crazier. So the time when something like that happens, you go, you're completely accepted as part of the movie. But people are there to see like an insane, fun, outrageous slasher movie. You know, I want the movie that you go see with a bunch of friends that you go see opening night or opening weekend. So no one spoils it. And you're just like hiding your face and screaming and people are grabbing their dates arms. And we, we had a few test screenings and the, and the response was through the roof. People were extremely vocal during the movie. And that's what you want in a movie like this. It's not a movie where you sit quietly and just don't say a word. I want people screaming and yelling the whole time. We've kind of always wanted that with all the movies that you've done. Yeah. Reaction. But let me ask you this. So, so we're talking from 2007 to, to, I'm sure when you started this in probably 2022 or 2021, why was there such a long gap in between and what finally made you decide to, to make this movie now? Well, I think I was a little burned out after Hostel 2, frankly. Right. I just sort of had been going nonstop. I did Cabin Fever, Hostel, Hostel 2, and had like incredible success and was really sure. psyched, but I'd never taken any time for myself. I stopped and I went to Chile and, you know, I got married, like my first marriage. And so I just was like, I needed to, I produced some stuff. I wrote some things, but I was like, I've, all I've done is work and I haven't ever lived life. I haven't done anything. You know, I don't want to just be someone who makes movies based on the other movies I really like. I need to gain some life experience and I wanted to have a long career. You know, there's, there is this thing where you get thrown every single movie and the Marvel movies and all these things. And I just thought I wanted to be so excited to do it. And also specifically after those two hostile movies, there was so much blood and so much screaming. It's not that I was bored of it, but it's like eating your favorite food every day for three years. You're like, I need to take a break. I need to find something else to do creatively. Mm -hmm. And then I kind of got back into it with green Inferno, which is that hybrid of horror and jungle adventure and cannibal. It's a different kind of horror movie. And then Knock Knock was a much quieter film. And Death Wish was, you know, I got to work with Bruce Willis. It was doing that. My first experience kind of working with a major star. And then, you know, House of the Clock and Its Walls. And then I made my documentary on Sharks, Finn, and then Borderlands, which was, you know, working with Kate Blanchett again. I mean, look, I Death Wish got me ready to work with Kate Blanchett and Jack Black. 
And that got me ready for Borderlands, where it's like Jack, Kate, Kevin Hart, Jamie Lee Curtis, Ariana Greenblatt, Edgar Ramirez. Like it was a incredible cast, an amazing experience. Big but film, by yeah. then I was like, I'd done three studio movies in a row. Death Wish is a studio movie. House of Clock and as well as a studio movie. Borderlands studio movie, where you're getting all the tools, you're getting the resources to do all the big stuff. But I was like, it's time for me to go back to basics, where I'm doing a down and dirty horror film, where I can really push the envelope and not be afraid to piss people off and do things that are borderline like, whoa, is that okay to do that? Like make something that feels like, and I've told this to Damon, I was like, I love Terrifier 2. It's not Terrifier 2. It's not like NC-17 over the top gore. This is like as hard R as you're going to get in a mainstream slasher film, but it's fun. It's not like a mean spirited movie. It's definitely much more at this, you know, it's scary and it's a ride, but it's much closer to the Scream, Final Destination, end of the spectrum. I just, I just wanted a great, but I follow the rules and conventions of a slasher film. Like, if you love slasher movies, you know, I was like, okay, you got to start with a POV shot of a house. Like, I, I just, I know that. Whatever happens, <laughs> handheld, and they're like, with a little title that says, you know, Thanksgiving night, Plymouth, you know, like, where you're identifying it. Like, just like in Halloween, just like in The Prowler, just like in Black Christmas, like, I kind of the beginning of blowout where De Palma parodies it with a slasher film that Travolta sound editing, but I love those movies. I have like a deep, deep passion for them. And I thought if I'm going to add to, if I'm going to make one of these, I need to add to the genre. I need to do something new. I need to push it forward. I can, like you with wrestling, you can't just do the favorite moves you loved as a kid. You got to like put your own spin on it. Mm. But, and I'm really happy with how it turned out. I think it really turned out. It, the movie really delivers and it delivers in the promise of, People that like the old trailer, I think are going to love it. And people that have no idea what the old trailer is are going to go and just be totally shocked and have a great time and get their asses kicked in the best way. When you're deciding to do this, do you start going to studios to pitch it? Or did, did you have a pre-existing deal from Thanksgiving from before? Yeah, because the original trailer was done at Dimension, they had a right of refusal. to like You had to go to them first. And that got sold to Lantern, which then became Spyglass Media Group. Gary Barber, who runs it, was the one who gave me the, you know, I'd worked with him on Death Wish. He was running MGM at the time. So I knew Gary and I knew Chris Stone, also from Dimension, and it was like doing it with family. They said, we want to make it. So I didn't have to shop it around. The, the first people went to, but they're not a distributor. They're a financier. So we started making the movie in March of this year. We basically started in January, February with no release date, with nothing, with just, we're going to make the movie. Maybe we'll show some footage in May or June to some people if someone wants to rush it. But I said, I'm going to make a movie that will be ready for theaters in November. So find somebody. And we had Sony and I think two other studios fighting for it before I even shot. Hmm. And they made a deal with Sony. They're like, TriStar wants it. They want huge worldwide re theatrical release. And I didn't want to make it for a streamer. You know, streamers do certain things very well. But I do believe that there is a thing of you're going to make a movie and it's in theaters. It's something special. Yeah, it's, it still is. Yeah. I don't, I don't love those movies. If you're going to make a movie that impacts pop culture, you've got to make a theatrical movie. Otherwise, your movie can exist on a streamer. And if you don't subscribe to that streamer, it's like the movie never existed. It's like it never happened. So I want to make a movie that fans look back from years from now that I want to give a whole new generation, say, this is our Scream. This is our Halloween. Mm. There's nine of them and they're classics. And they're like the pillars of the horror industry. But you know, like Five Nights at Freddy's, there's a whole generation now. They're like, that's my horror film. You know, everything else is your parents. And so you want to give a new generation their horror movie going, Thanksgiving, that's our franchise. This is the one for us. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Quick little side note here. How do you feel with the pandemic? Because like you mentioned, no one was really going to the theater. So they just started to release movies directly to streaming. You know, I, I remember like coming to America too. And yeah. I think even more of the Halloweens and they were just basically going straight to streamers. Yeah. King of Staten Island. Yeah. Yeah. And not doing it in the theater. Do you think that hurt the, the theater business? 
not, I mean, look, people couldn't go out into the theaters and they were afraid. Nobody wanted to sit. You know, everyone was afraid of someone sneezing and coughing on them. Right, right, right. So nobody wanted to have someone behind them where they could potentially cough on you. So I understand why it happened, but it definitely did. It cheapened the movies. It's like, remember, we used to all rush out to Walmart and buy one movie DVD for $15 or $20. We were so excited. Yeah. Or nine. Then it went on sale for nine bucks. Now you spend that on a month of movies at Netflix. Like the idea of buying one movie is crazy. It devalued DVDs to the point where the whole industry crashed. And I thought they were playing a very dangerous game, you know, putting Dune and these, these films that should be seen on a big screen, just putting them on HBO Max. It all becomes the same. You know, yeah. it doesn't feel like a theatrical movie. It doesn't feel like, I remember that movie, The Little Things. They're like, oh, it's on HBO Max. And it's, you're like, why would you put this, this great Jared Leto performance on streaming? So I think that it did cheapen the movies. I mean, I understand, but we also, at the time, we didn't know how long that was going to go. We didn't know how serious this was, how many people were going to die, and if we'd all be stuck in our houses. So I understand it, but it definitely hurt the industry, and I think the industry is still bouncing back. But yeah, it was it was bad. I mean, th- what's great is horror movies are going strong. You know, people are coming out to see those. I used to go to the movies twice a week, maybe, you know, take my kids. And then it, now it's, it's, I haven't seen a lot of movies in the theater since we've been back out again, but the ones I have seen are the horror movies. Yeah. I've seen probably 10 and they're all horror movies. Like you said, it's like, there's something about a horror movie in the theater that just fits better than watching it on your phone or on your TV at home. Yeah. And you want to get scared and you get more scared in a big theater and you want to see it before everyone else sees it. You you don't want it ruined for you. And mm-hmm. look, when I made Hostel, the other movies that were in the theater, it was like Peter Jackson's King Kong. Like that's your comp. It's not just other horror movies that are your competition. Right. It's Marvel movies. So the audience that's spending, you know, 10, 15, sometimes 20 bucks on a movie ticket, they're going to go see the Avengers and they're going to go see you. Like you have to be that good at being a horror film. And I think a lot of the stuff on the streamers, it doesn't worry about box office. Like it doesn't have to be, you know, remember, there's something about this has to be so good that if people pay money, they absolutely loved it and thought it was the best time. You're giving people a great night at the movies, and it makes you rethink every single decision. I don't want this to be boring. This scene better be fucking scary. This kill better be fucking awesome mm-hmm. because someone is taking their hard-earned money and a night out, and maybe they got a babysitter, and they're going to see it. So this isn't like when you make a movie and you know it's going to be on a streamer, you don't have that pressure. You don't have that I have to compete with every other movie that's out there. I have to make sure this concept is so much better that people come out of their houses to go see it. And I think that when you see something in a theater, now it has to be special. I mean, the only original movies that are horror movies that have come out recently, it's going to be Talk to Me and Thanksgiving. And if you look at the fall, it's Marvel, it's sequels. I mean, it's like, this is the only, one of the only, I'm proud, it's one of the only original theatrical films coming out. So that's, you know, in and of itself is an achievement, but you know, and, and hopefully people come out and support it and we can do more of them. But I, I think that, you know, the streaming, what it's done is it's sort of made directors sort of not incentivized for their movie to have to make money. Like this movie has to make money or I don't get to make an, another one. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you make a movie for a streamer, everybody's paid up front, everybody gets money, and then it just goes on the streamer and it just exists and that's it. It's a different mentality when you're fighting for your life. I think you make better films when you're fighting for your life. I've never seen anyone make a movie for a streamer where I go, wow, that is easily that director's best movie. I've yet to see it. That's a great point. Let me ask you this. When you're talking about kind of your your history in Hollywood and you start with Cabin Fever and Hostel and you're going through, you know, all the different movies that you've done. But then you mentioned Death Wish. You mentioned House of the Clock and its Walls. So now when you go back to make a horror movie, what have you learned from working with these major studio movies and, and actors and going back to your basics of doing kind of this hostile style movie but now you've got all the experience that you've had over the last 20 years of working with these big hollywood films as well how do what do you take from that to put back into your old school horror movie well it's a it's a great question chris and you know you've been at wrestling so long i remember the first time you met one of those icons or legends and you got to work with them and do a show with them, what you learn from them. And now you're the one that trains the young guys. And you're like, the, you're the, we've become the Yoda. I'd like to think <laughs> we're still Darth Vader, but we are Yoda to these That's kids. True. <laughs> but the stuff that you just know from 30 years of experience of doing it, that it's just like in your DNA now, it's so natural to you. That's what happens after 20 years. You know, what I noticed now is that having worked with the best, and we're talking about like 
Kate Blanchett, Jamie Lee Curtis, Kevin Argent. Like you see what the greats do and what makes them who they are. And you try to impart that onto the new generation who are coming off a TV show or maybe it's their first movie. And I sat down with them and I told them, I was like, look, the people that I worked with, like Ana de Armas did not speak a word of English when I cast her in Knock Knock. I just knew that she was going to be a star. And it was her performance in Knock Knock that got her blonde. That's what Andrew Dominic saw that said she could be Marilyn Monroe. But you knew it right away. When Cami Marone had never acted before and I cast her in Death Wish, she's now nominated for an Emmy for Daisy Jones and the Six because I just knew she was great. She was 19 years old. She was like a young Julia Roberts. Now, I can say that to these kids. I can go, look, if you, you know, John Watts, when he made the clown trailer, we made his first movie, Clown, I knew he was incredibly talented. And now he's directing Spider-Man and, you know, he just did a movie with George Clooney and Brad Pitt. So I know talent and the young kids respect me and they can look at my track record and they want to be that. They're looking at Ana de Armas and Camila Marone or John Watts or the people that I've worked with when they were just starting out. You know, Julia Garner was in Last Exorcism too. Like people, Dave Batista and Man with the Iron Fists, mm -hmm. who were like, Dave's going to be a star. We knew it from the movie. So I have a track record now of having found young talent and helped them get their start in the industry and give them a role where they can show their greatness. So I was like, if you guys want to make money, go do posts on Instagram. If you want to be an actor, you show up here every day, you know your part, you know your lines. And I was like, we all lift each other up. I was like, I've seen what happens in, so I'm not going to name who, I mean, in some films where actors get jealous and they sabotage another person's performance. And I've seen what happens when everyone works together and lift e lifts each other up. And so everyone brought the right attitude, you know, but I was able to, they, they can't pull any bullshit with me. Also because I'm an actor myself, you know, I had shot in English faster, mm -hmm. but, but I have experience as an actor and I could, I understand it. I understand what they're going through. I know what they need. I know how to read the room. You know, I just know it inherently as a writer, as like a very experienced writer, director, producer, and actor. Like the way you know you could walk into the cruise and run that. You could walk into the wrestling ring and run that. You could walk on a movie set and know what's going on. And you could walk into a concert and grab a microphone and know what's going on. You just have experience and writing a book. Like you have experience in all of these disciplines, mm -hmm. you know, after 20 years or 30 years. So, it's been really nice to kind of be like the dad on set and find the right kids and give them an opportunity and help them be their greatest. And then it's on me to protect their performance and make sure in the editing room that everyone shines, you know, everybody comes off great in the movie. And that's one of the things that people have said is like, this isn't like a slasher film where you're waiting for the next annoying person to get it. And the kids are boring. Like people love the characters. They're having fun. Like the way you love deputy Winston <laughs> and, you know, or the kids in hostel, like those weird, fun, strange characters that come in. Like this kid, this guy, Joe Delphin, who plays McCarty, who's like kind of the metal head. He's super into metal. And he like, he and his dad run the gun store and they're trying to like, just basically be like, why doesn't everyone just get a gun? Problem solved. Like he's, he's really <laughs> funny and kind of crass and he's selling, he's doing a party for underage kids. So he's like selling alcohol takes like the night before Thanksgiving, everyone goes to the McCarty party and gets drunk. And this guy, Joe Delphin, I mean, he's been <laughs> working for 14 years, struggling as an actor, but he was so ready for this and he was so good. And he just nailed it. He's so funny that you can tell he's going to pop from the film. And, you know, he's also, the best part was he was also kind of working as a bartender and like knew all these things. Like, and he was like, yeah, let's sneak everybody into my bar. I was like, you, you don't have to be McCarty in real life, Joe. It's okay. Like <laughs> he didn't do it, but he was, he was very funny. But it's great when you can give someone like that a role of a lifetime and they just chew in and they go, or Gabriel Davenport, who's this kid, you know, he's, he's such a good young actor and they were there and he's in, you know, he's in the trailer now. And now we have the, the video game survive Thanksgiving is out. Like there's a, a video game. Wow. There's a video game about it. Yeah. The video game. I know we're recording this the day before the video game comes out, but it's a mobile game survive, survive Thanksgiving.com. And I made sure that all the actors were in it. So these kids like did this horror movie for no money. And not only do they get a great role, now they're we video gameize them. Like and, and I so that's the joke because they say that we've all become NPCs. But they're all floating around in the game. So this project had the right energy. Like you felt mm -hmm. it in Cabin Fever, you felt it in Hustle. Not that I have Green Inferno, like not that I didn't feel any other ones, but when you're doing something low budget, everybody's got to be there for the right reasons. And they gotta be like, it was a fast shoot. So we're like, we're just showing up, giving our best and leaving and having a great time. And you know, be, when you're low budget, you can cast unknowns and interesting people and new faces and help break new stars and create a new 
breed of stars and actors and give them their shot. Like Nell Verlack, our lead, is so amazing. She's like a young Julia Roberts. And she'd done one Disney show called Big Shots, but she's a theater actor. And she just was like, she has the gravitas of a Jennifer Lawrence or a Natalie Portman. And mm. when she's complete, it's just beautiful and just real. And you'd never seen her before. So you're just like watching her in this movie and you completely can hang the whole film on her. She's such a fantastic actor. And then you have Addison Ray, who's known for TikTok, who is so spunky and fun and full of energy and full of life and is the most generous, sweetest person and brings that to the set. And you pair her with Nell and they just bring out the best in each other. And their friendship is so real. And then you surround them with like Milo Mannheim who came in. I mean, Milo's known for his Disney movie, Zombies. He's like a big <laughs> Disney star, but he's never gotten to this kind of stuff where he's like swearing and fighting. And, you know, he's the boyfriend, the new asshole boyfriend. He's a great suspect in a slasher film. So watching Milo get to do all this stuff that he's never allowed to do in a Disney show is uh, such a pleasure. I've known Milo since he was born, but we've never worked together. So it was great for me to take that experience that I had working with Kate Blanchett, working with Kevin Hart, working with... Bruce Willis, all of it, mm -hmm. and bring it to my own set and working with Tarantino and the stuff he does on set and the vibe. But dude, I was so prepared on this. And it was Milan Khadaba who shot Hostel, my DP. You know, we hadn't worked together. He shot Second Unit on Borderlands. We hadn't worked together since Hostel 2, and we were like long overdue for a reunion. And he came in and we're like, we have to outdo ourselves here. Mm -hmm. um, and then you're working with Jeff Randell, who's my best friend, who wrote it and is a brilliant writer. You know, and this is his first script, but he spent 16 years on it. So it's great. <laughs> it's really great. And it's the dialogue is natural and fun, and the twists are fantastic. But he spent like two years working out the plot mechanics and the twists and the reality and talking to people in the police force in Boston and what would go down if this happened and this happened. And so everything is factually accurate. So it was really, it just felt like a, a kind of a family reunion of our old friends from childhood and hostel. Um, Rick Hoffman was in hostel as the American businessman and being on set with him again was a pleasure. So Gina Gershon had done Borderlands. So we had a great time when she came in and Dempsey, we, be, we made fast friends with him. We loved him. I mean, I, you know, he's so used to those romantic comedies. Now it's great to see him in this point in his career where he's got the two movies he has coming out are Ferrari uh, and Thanksgiving, like totally different from the stuff he's done before. So I just felt ready. I just felt like I had this confidence where you know, when you're making a movie, it's constant problem solving. It's being like a maybe a jazz musician or just constantly improvising where mm -hmm. it's not about the shot you have. It's like, what happens? I mean, when you're shooting the parade, it was raining, snowing, sunny. Like, you're just going, oh my God, how am I going to get this shot? What am I going to do for this? What you know, the weather inconsistencies, it just looked insane. And now you watch it and you wouldn't notice that. But like just the way you can, you have a special effect set up with all the rigging and the wires and the stuff and none of it works. And then you got to figure out something else at the last minute. <laughs> we always say it's a faith-based system. You just have to have faith that it's going to work out. And in the editing room, we're like, oh man, it's not working. It's not, what are we going to do? It's always, oh no. And then there's that new idea that you come up with that suddenly is just there for you. So, and then you, you know, you're rolling the dice that it's all just going to somehow magically work out. And then in, a, in its own weird way, it does, you know, we're doing this trampling scene, the opening kind of black Friday riot where you have like <laughs> 600 people and we use, there's no CGI. It's just 600 people. So, and they're Canadians. So they're super polite, you know, like <laughs> it's great. I always think we want to make Canadian Thanksgiving where the killer stabs and goes, sorry. <laughs> that would have to be in October though. Yeah, exactly. You know, we would do in October Canadian Thanksgiving. But all the, the Canadians, you know, we're like, okay, everyone say hi to your neighbor. And they're like, hi. They're like, okay, we're all going to pretend to be like wanting to kill each other. But when we say cut, like look around, make sure the person next to you is okay. And they had, you know, people of all ages, older people, and they just went for it. And I was like, and save your energy because we're going to be doing this a lot. Like in four nights, we had two nights outside and two nights inside the store. And people just had the time of their lives. You'd yell cut and you look over, everyone okay. Nobody got hurt. Everyone was laughing. But when you said like you guys are fighting over a waffle iron or a toaster, a big screen TV, people just want like something just came out. They were just like it was like a hockey fight. Like we tried to get Ty Domi, but he wouldn't do it. Like we reached out to him. We wanted Domi. I wanted Domi pummeling Jeff, but everyone's like, you got to be careful. Domi's not going to act. He's not going to know to like do a movie punch. So I just we, we tried to get him. We tried to get him, but I do have someone in a, in a Jay Miller jersey getting their next lights. So it's kind of fun. Do you want a beautiful lawn? 
Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Well, you mentioned Tarantino, like going from directing to acting. Obviously, uh, Quentin saw something you as an actor, one of your best roles, The Bear Jew and Glorious Bastards. You've done quite a, a lot of other stuff as well. Do you learn from him as a director? Oh, yeah. You know, I had done three movies as a director before I went and acted. But then as an actor, you're really learning the other side. You're seeing what goes on. You know, you never get to hang out in the hair and makeup trailer. Mm -hmm. You stop in to see how everyone's doing, but that's where it goes down. That's where all the gossip is. Like <laughs> the hair and makeup trailers where shit goes down, where all oh, everyone's, you know, this was, blah, 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 blah. and then you kind of see what goes on at base camp and what the actors are doing, but also being responsible for your shit, like being responsible for your scenes. And the, the biggest thing I learned from Quentin was everybody's best work is off camera most of the time, especially when they're nervous since the first day, like the camera's on you and then the actor acting opposite you is there, but they're not on camera. They're like in your eyeline, you know, kind of giving you the performance to react to. And then you, they get your scenes and you got it and you turn the camera around. Well, then you're kind of playing with house money. You've done your scene. Now it's their turn and you're just throwing shit out, being funny to fuck with them or get a reaction. But sometimes what you do off camera is so much better. You're like, ah, why didn't we do that when I was shooting? Because you're so focused on what's in your head. And then I remember, you know, like with the thing with the hand gestures, he stopped and he turned, I did that off camera and he's like, we, we got to shoot that. We, we, he relit, he turned the camera back around and got, and got me doing that stuff because we came up with it off camera. So he said, he's like, never be afraid to turn the camera around again and redo a shot if that actor is giving you something. Now you never have time to do it, but it's worth it. And the other thing I learned from him is he's like the director, you need your time to rehearse with actors on set with nobody around. No one's going to be free with a hundred crew members watching you. Hmm. So he's like the direct, the director of photography, they get to light with their guys, the set, everybody gets to set. But you know, once the clock is ticking, everyone's like, we got a day, we got to do what I like to do is come to the set. That's what Quentin does with nobody, just the actors. And you talk through it. And you work it out. Now you've rehearsed a little bit, but it's your first day you're on set. You're about to shoot it. Well, would you walk in? Nothing about where the camera is. Just walking through the beats of what do you do? Where do we go? So I like to do that. I like to bring the actors to set and we rehearse in the space. And they're like, I would sit here and they need that. And I was like, and everyone is freaking out. And the producers are freaking out. And the 80s are freaking out. And you go, look, if we spend 15 or 20 minutes doing this, we're going to get everything done because we're figuring it out now. You don't want to get here, right. light a shot, set the camera, and the actor's like, why am I walking over there? That doesn't make sense. Then I can't, then, you have, then the lighting's a mess. So mm -hmm. you work the whole scene out until you're running it like a scene from a play. Then you bring in your cameraman, your director of photography, and your assistant director, and you go, okay, this is how I'm going to do it. And then we, then we get the lens finder and we start, we just have the actors doing it over and over and over and over. So they're comfortable. Oh, I sit here. Then on this line, you're going to watch. It's very technical. And then you bring in the crew and you show them and the stand-ins are watching and you go, this is what we're going to shoot for this scene. And everyone's like, mm. I got it. And I go, first shot is this. Then we go here. Then we go here. Then we turn around that. The whole thing is six pieces. Let's go. Now, often you don't get access to the set until the day you're shooting. Like we're shooting on locations. You're shooting in someone's house. So you can kind of set up folding chairs and a table. But once you get into the house and the space, you know, the actors need a minute. If you're going to act like this is your house, you can't just go, okay, the camera's ready, show up, and this is your dining room. You have to feel like you've been in there right. for years. So that extra time, I always find at the beginning of the day, you don't always get it. But man, if you can rehearse with your actors in the space, just you, and then figure out the shots from the action that the actors do the scenes are going to look much better. You're going to know what you're doing. The whole thing's dialed in and you make your day. Do you have a lot of, uh, like I know from working with Kevin Smith a couple of times, I would ask him, like, I have this idea for the character. He's like, do it. It's your character. That's why I hired you. Do you do that? Or do you have a lot of input? Like, I'd like you to try and try play it this way. This is the idea that I have. Yeah. Do you allow the actors to really kind of make those choices? Well, when you're casting an actor, you're seeing something in them that rings true with the character. Mm -hmm. You're going, okay, this person is this character in a way, whether they realize it or not. 
they're they're playing that character, but if I hadn't written the character and I was just putting them in, they're pretty close. Or there's something in them that can do that. I don't mean that if you're playing the dickhead, you are a dickhead, but you can turn on the smarm. I, I could see you doing that, being really great at it, right. and having fun with it, not being afraid to do it, and worrying about what people think about you, just going, being honest and true to the character. That said, you know, with me and Jeff, my, who's my co-writer and partner in this, we rehearsed with all the actors. So we would read it. And all these kind of questions about character and backstory, that's the rehearsal period. You don't want to be doing that on set. You want to sit there and you're not just reading the scenes. Like you kind of can read through it in rehearsal. But I basically, I'll sit down with the actors and talk through, you. okay, Gabby's your best friend. When did you guys meet? Are you best friends since third grade? Or was it from seventh grade? Or was it from this? Like, Because that's going to change it. Right. Is she a new friend? Are you best friends since ninth grade? Did she transfer to the school? Like, what is everybody's history? What? How do you know each other? Because the way you relate to your friends from when you were five years old versus 15 years old versus 30, it's going to be a completely different relationship. So you have to talk about this stuff, and then they'll come up with ideas. And then when they're in the zone and they're dialed in on the character, I like them to do the lines as written, then they'll go, can I try something? And then when they try something, they'll come up with something that's amazing. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes in rehearsal, they'll throw out a thing or they'll do something during a take or they'll say a line a certain way. And I'll go, that was really funny. Do that again. Or I go, mm, that was too much. You did that in the last scene. Or ah, it feels like we're sticking. Or, or I realize I'm having two characters do the same joke. It's like, that's more of an Evan thing. Scoob would be a little more quiet. Like it's not about who gets the joke. It's about what's right for which character. For the scene, yeah. And then there's another character, like one character. I was like, I know she's not much, but we're gonna figure it out. I knew the actor, this girl, Jenna Warren. We hadn't we we sort of wrote her character. You know, you go through with like it's six main characters. So we hers was the least developed. And in the rehearsal, me and Jeff worked with her and we had the things and the backstory and we and we filled it out. We're like, we know we're gonna get there but let's fill it out in the rehearsal period. So every character has to feel like someone you grew up with. You have to know them as well as you know your friends from high school. Right, right, right. And that doesn't always happen. Sometimes you've really just focused on your lead and you've shortchanged some of the others, or you came in with a comedic character that's in it for three or four scenes and steals it like Deputy Winston types. <laughs> but then when you when you want your leads, they all have to feel three-dimensional. And that's that's the fun for me. That's what I think separates my films from some others I've seen is that I feel like those other things aren't thought through. And dialogue's the cheapest thing to do. You know, all you have to do is sit and think about it. But sometimes you're like, that character just feels so generic. They said some stuff, but it didn't feel like a real character. I don't know anything about it. I can't remember them. I can't remember them the way I remember Rad from Hard Bodies. You know, like, <laughs> why do I know these characters from 80s movies better than these other characters? I was like, are those characters better written? Yes, they are. They're, they're more thought out. So it's just thinking it through. And that's, that's kind of once you get your cast, you sit down in the rehearsal period Everybody talks through everything about the relationships. I was like, I want you guys, when you all get in a car, you would always know where each other sits in this situation. Mm -hmm. You just know, just because you've done it so many times. So that's the kind of vibe. And, and that's credit to the cast. They all made fast friends. Remember like Jalen Thomas Brooks and, and everyone, when we all came together, Addison, Nell, Gabriel Tomazo, Janet, like, we're like, you guys have to be friends. You all have to know each other. And we got two weeks to do that. So they just started hanging out. They started going to the movies. You know, Milo's hosting food nights in his room and getting dinner for everyone. So when I was off planning the next day, the cast were like on their own, developing really, really, really tight friendships. I gave everyone handy cams, like from the 2000s, because I wanted the <laughs> BTS to have the aesthetic like Blair Witch. And then I was like, <laughs> everybody got a camera. And I was like, you can shoot whatever you want. We'll use stuff for promo. I'll filter it out. But like, we'll have batteries you can charge. So everyone's... They're so used to shooting stuff on their phones. They love shooting, you know, <laughs> making of. I was like, it should be like a cast diary. So those are starting to come out in the promotion materials. But it was just a great experience. And the cast did it. The work, they, they were all ready to work. Everybody wanted to make friends. They all started working out together, hanging out together, going to the movies together. And by the time we shot, the inside jokes were there. They could finish each other's sentences. The looks were there. We all had the common goal of being friends. And everyone is still, we're all still on the same text group chatting all day, all day, posting stuff. And every, every, they can't believe it. They can't believe that we started this in March and that we got picked up by a distributor while we were shooting and that it's actually coming out in theaters now. It's kind of blowing everyone's mind. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com. 
T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Last few things as we start to wind down, uh, Eli, you've come up with some of the most creative and brutal kills, in my opinion, in horror movie history. So when you're coming up with with the kills for, for Thanksgiving, are you coming up with these ideas? Is there anything that's too far out? You still have to keep in mind that you're an R-rated film. Kind of how does that process work? It's a great question because you can shoot all the gore you want. And we did. And you show it to an audience. It sometimes feels like it's not part of the story. It's just so crazy yes. that the audience checks out. And I noticed that, that I did stuff to the point where people were like, this is awesome. This is awesome. Then they're like, I don't feel good about this. I'm not enjoying myself anymore. This is turning into like, there's like a brutal kill that's fucking nuts. And then there's like, it crosses a line into cruelty that people are like, I don't want to be here in this. Like, this isn't what I signed up for. Right. And you can't promise them one thing and deliver another. Like if you're making that kind of a movie, it's got to be that from the outset. And it's a fun slasher film. So I want insane, horrible deaths but I don't want to like linger in the like awfulness. We like yes. show the kill, everyone screams, it's horrible, and we move on. So we shot everything, but it's really in the editing process that you kind of find that. But you know, I'm stacking every kill in the movie, not just against my own films, but against every kill before it. You know, I'm thinking about every slasher movie. I'm thinking about every death in Friday the 13th Part 2, thinking about all the kills in The Prowler. I'm thinking about what I've seen recently in movies and, you know, the kind of scary conjuring talk to me kind of stuff that's working. And this is not that this is like straight up slasher. So you're bringing back a different type of genre going against the grain of what's kind of popular right now. So it's got to stand out. It's got to be something you have never seen in a movie before they go, Oh my God, I cannot. <laughs> I want people to watch this movie going, I cannot believe I'm watching this in a movie theater. I can't believe someone actually did this, but that they can't wait to see what's next. <laughs> so when you're coming up with the kills, like you can eviscerate a body. That's not hard. You can chop a head off, but how do you do it in such a fun and interesting and creative way that the audience never sees coming? That's the art to it. And coming up with fun stuff I've never seen before and things that I've always wanted to do to characters in a movie. I was like, oh, I've always wanted to see someone die like this in a slasher film. <laughs> Working those in. You know, this is the movie that I've been dreaming of making since I was a little kid. So, and you know, whereas Hostel is not, it's also my first movie with a villain. Every horror movie I've ever done before has never had a villain. It was disease. Good it point. was people's perversity. It was the tribe of people fighting back, thinking they were defending themselves. Like, mm-hmm. it's not like there's an evil person. I've never made a movie. I've made a bunch of horror movies, yet I've never actually had a killer. I mean, the only evil person, it was Isaac Izzard and House of the Clock and Its Walls, but that's, he's the big bad in that. But I've never made a horror movie with a killer. So I was like, if I'm going to do it, it better be a damn good killer, you know? It was fun. I loved it. Getting to do those scenes, like we watched Mute Witness right before with all the cat and mouse, like there's a lot of mute witness in this movie. So I, I rewatched that. It's really, really such a special film. But yeah, that was uh, that's the fun of it is is saying I've always wanted to see this, and this is going to be my slasher movie killer. And you know, hopefully people uh, go see it in droves and scream their heads off. I love this. Uh, John Carver is the name of the slasher of the killer, much in the same vein as Jason Freddy. Now we've got John Carver here. John, Car- I know we 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 called him the Pilgrim when we made the trailer, and then we found out that there was this John Cava. There was a real John Carver, an actual historical figure name. Is there a more perfect slasher name than the founder, the guy, the the first governor of New Plymouth Colony, the guy who was in charge of the Mayflower, John Carver? I mean, John Carver. John Cava. Last two questions for you, Eli. What's your favorite kill that's ever been in one of your movies besides Thanksgiving? Is there one that stands up for you as one that you really like the best? Man, it's hard to say. They're all, you know, the leg shaving was my thing, the the eyeball in hostel, but jumping in front of the train, but the the hostel two bathtub, the green inferno Jonah's death where he's chopped to pieces. That was terrible. That that would be my favorite. I mean, you see it so many times you get numb to it. It's like, how do you pick your favorite kid? It's, it's hard to tell. (laughs) That's right. That's right. And then we talked about this the other day and I was wondering to get your opinion. I just did a podcast with, uh, with Darcy from last drive in about the Halloween versus Friday the 13th franchises. I just wanted to get your opinion on which one you like better, or if you like them both the same or you have the pros and cons. 
I like Friday the 13th. Definitely. I mean, look, Halloween, you're going to get Halloween 2, which is fun, and Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, which I will always be a defender of to the death because <laughs> I'm on the Atkins diet <laughs> with Tom Atkins. But <laughs> when you get after that, they get repetitive. And I was never scared by Michael Myers. I like Michael Myers, but he never scared me. Jason mm. got creative. The kills in Friday the 13th Part 2, which are obviously very much a remake of Bay of Blood, Mario Bava's Twitch of the Death Nerve from 1971. Wow, good call. That was kind of created the POV and that it's like a very much a, I would say, hugely influenced by that. They're so fun. The guy getting the machete in the face in the wheelchair, which is the most horrible thing ever. But going down the stairs, we would laugh so hard when we saw that. It was awful. <laughs> Poor guy. Poor guy. He's the nicest guy. I tried. And then I looked him up. I was like, I need to cast that guy to move. And he died. And I felt even worse. Yeah, but it's great death. And part three with the hockey mask in 3D. And then part four with Corey Feldman. And then part five, like, then he went to space. Like, the great thing about Jason was the kills were so creative and so fun that I just didn't care if it was scary or not. Where for me, it was always like, then the Michael Myers movies, suddenly he was supernatural in the last one. And I was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> they keep killing him and he keeps getting up. And you have a mob of 30 people around Michael Myers and they take turns one at a time. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> There's a mob trying to kill this one person and you're taking turns so you can, and it, yes, it's awesome that Michael Myers takes everyone out. But when Michael Myers suddenly became supernatural, I was like, I don't know what this is. This isn't my Halloween. Jason was always kind of supernatural. He was a kid, then he was a baghead. And somehow between part two and part three, he went to the horror movie slasher gym and just turned into a WWF wrestler. It's like, <laughs> comes out like six, six, 300 pounds. He was just a beast. I was like, oh yeah, this guy went to the slasher gym and he was a monster and he was just an unstoppable killing machine with a hockey mask and a machete and you couldn't kill him. Like that's what's the genius about Friday the 13th part three was back then, no one even thought you could get to a three because your killer died, so why would you? But they were just like, what if he just comes back? They're just like, eh, he's Jason. You're never going to kill him. He just He's just back. No reason, yeah. He just rose from the grave, and everyone's like, yeah, we're, we're down with that. Bunch of new kids to kill. So it wasn't even a real... So when they started doing that Michael Myers, I was like, Jason already kind of took that thunder from part three. So, mm -hmm. you know, I thought there were some fantastic sequences. I love Jamie Lee Curtis. I think, you know, David Gordon Green, that opening the first Halloween reboot 2018 and that sequence, that one long take he did of him going through watching Michael Myers walk around Halloween on Halloween, bumping yeah. into kids, slashing me was inspired, but I'll always love Friday the 13th. I think it's due for a comeback. I know they got to get the rights together, figure out who owns what to make the 13th. Yeah. Fighting. Yeah. Well, dude, it's always a blast talking to you, man. Congratulations on Thanksgiving. I've been waiting for this for 16 years as well. Thanks man. Hopefully it's worth the wait. Yeah, absolutely, man. Hopefully we get a chance to see each other soon and uh, have a pumpkin beer together. Cold pumpkin beer. Let's do it, man, for Borchardt. Sometimes life is pretty cool sometimes. Sometimes <laughs> life is pretty cool sometimes. <laughs>